183 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Glomerulus on a Chip, with Dr. Samira Musa. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. A quick note about our upcoming schedule. This is our last episode before the holidays, and we will be taking a short break. But don't you worry, because we'll be back on Tuesday, January 12th with a brand new episode. So make sure to mark your calendar and check back in then. Today, we have Dr. Samira Musa from Duke University Go Blue Devils on the podcast to talk about her research, bioengineering functional models to study human kidney disease. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, and yes, go Blue Devils, looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the field of stem cell biology, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News, featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry policy and science news. Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their field while saving time. So subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. Arun, I'm kicking it off today with the lymphatics. The lymphatics are very hot. Uh, no one was paying much mm -hmm. attention to them back in the day. It was all about the arteries and the veins, but we've heard enough about those two cousins. Now we're talking about the lymph almost every day. Um, and, you know, owing to that attention, the molecular functional characterization of lymphatic vasculature has significantly improved. Uh, and we know a lot about it. In the heart specifically, uh, we know that uh, formation of new lymphatics or lymphangiogenesis uh, delays our atherosclerotic plaque formation. It facilitates the healing process after myocardial infarction. Um, and this suggests that, uh, you know, stimulation of lymphangiogenesis, making these new lymphatics in the infarcted heart could improve cardiac function. And this is supported by studies in mouse and zebrafish uh, that show that the newly formed lymphatics, they provide a route for clearing immune cells in the injured heart. And that's part of what promotes cardiac repair. But whether lymphatics have additional functional roles during heart development and cardiac repair is not known. You know, the idea is that it's just like a path, a conduit. Um, but, you know, angiocrine, as Shaheen would say, there may be some functional or instruction, instructional input there that's uh, driving the process. So uh, this is a story from Guillermo Oliver, who's at Northwestern. Uh, also on this paper is Paul Burridge, your boy, Arun. Um, you know, they, they were interested in under in identifying what are the molecules coming out of this, this uh, lymphatic vasculature, the lymphangiocrine signal <laughs> produced by these lymphatic endothelial cells. Um, what they found that there was, in fact, a secreted factor specific to lymphatic endothelial cells that controlled proliferation, also survival of cardiomyocytes, and that's during embryonic development. Um, but also they showed that the lymphatics were important during neonatal cardiac regeneration. You know, in mouse, you can cut off a big chunk, like 20% of the heart, and it'll regrow with no scar. So um, lymphatics are important for that process. Also, uh, it, the lymphatics are cardioprotective after myocardial infarction in adults as well. That's what they show. Um, in development, when they take, get rid of the lymphatic endothelial cells, the hearts are small. Uh, and that's because there's reduced cardiomyocyte proliferation um, and increased apoptosis. And that's important. We're going to come back around to that. Uh, and then 
by taking uh, primary cardiomyocytes from heart um, and putting them in uh, conditioned media from lymphatic endothelial cells, they showed that it was a secreted factor that was mediating this proliferation and increased survival. And then they, they took a, a, a mass spec approach um, to characterize the secretome uh, from the conditioned media of those lymphatic endothelial cells, and they identified relin as a specific protein that, that underlied the process or was involved in the process at least. They knock out relin specifically in the LECs and show that they recapitulate that small heart phenotype, that you need relin for efficient heart repair in the, after the neo, neonatal uh, infarct or injury. Um, and here's the big kicker. In adults, they used a collagen patch that was uh, imbued with relin. Uh, and showed that it could improve heart function after myocardial infarction in adults. So there, there was, I think, what brought it to the caliber of nature. It was a real therapeutic idea there that you could, you could use Relin in a patch um, and give it to patients. Uh, so, yeah, a big story in the heart. Arun, I'm surprised you didn't jump on this. I got to it first, I guess. But I, I think it's a, it's an important story anytime you can identify a specific factor. I love angiocrine. You know me. Um, but also a therapeutic factor that could be delivered um, uh, in a practical way, I think, uh, could, could be a huge step towards meeting uh, the needs of, of a huge class of patients. You know, cardiovascular disease is the biggest, right? It is the biggest, but I am trying to expand my horizons, Daylon. You know, if you have if you haven't noticed, I haven't covered a cardiac paper too I, recently. I have noticed. Or have actually. I? I yeah. Have. See, I'm trying to expand my horizons. I'm trying to be a good tradie and learn about things outside of my field too. So yes, but hey, I'm still a big fan of the work. It's a powerful study because it tells us a little bit more about the lymphatic system. And it seems like this is a really hot topic. We've actually covered a couple of uh, similar-ish papers here on the podcast in the months past. Um, if you remember, we covered Sherry Gur-Cohen's and Elaine Fuchs's paper that came out in Science where they actually found that the lymphatic system has a pretty important role in skin hair follicle regeneration. And, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a cool model system for, for studying that. And, you know, Paul Burridge is on this paper, a former guest of ours. So there was a NIPS cardiomyocyte role in here. And it's cool that they were able to identify this secreted factor in Reland that actually has uh, this positive impact. And like I said, you know, this is a it's a really cool dual role for the cardiac lymphatic system. It's got this developmental role in regulating uh, developmental formation of the heart I and mean, also this, you know, injury system as well, this injury model. And so it's it really the lymphatic you know system is more than just a drainage system. It's important for homeostasis of cardiac um, and you know other organs as well. So there's a lot we need to learn about how the lymphatic system actually works throughout the body. Yes, for sure, Shaheen. This is a nod to you, Andrew Crane. Um, but I will say there's a couple things I, I I have to say about this that there's open questions. Um, one, you mentioned uh, the Fuchs skin story. Well. You might be interested to, to hear that the source of cells, so they got commercially available dermal lymphatic endothelial cells. Um, that's what they used in the co-culture, you know, to generate that condition media and then to identify using the mass spec from the whole secretome. That was from condition media from dermal lymphatic. So um, I, I think while Relin clearly is able 
to uh, have an effect there and is a potent, perhaps therapeutic. Um, I, I, I wonder if we've really captured the totality of the lymphangiocrine secretome. Um, and I, I wonder if there aren't other factors that really are unique to the lymphatics in the heart. So I'm guessing that we're going to see another story soon enough that focuses on the lymphatics specifically in the heart um, and maybe identify some extra factors there. But, you know, like you said, like I said, this is really a, a cool uh, story, both from the developmental, you know, just basic insight, but also from a clinical standpoint as well. So very exciting work. Good stuff coming out of Guillermo Oliver's lab over there in Northwestern. Side note, has um, your guy Shaheen Rafi been on the podcast? He has been. He has been. Okay. We're going to get him on again. He, he had a story a little while ago that was pretty big with uh, these ETV2 endothelial mm. cells. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it's time. Shaheen, you got to come back. You're going to come back on for us, buddy. I just want him. I just want to hear him say that angiocrine in his his very specific voice. Are you saying my impersonation isn't adequate, Arun? Come on, I've been I've, I've been studying this guy for a decade. I'm just saying I haven't heard the real thing, so I don't have anything to compare it to. How about that? Alrighty, so we're gonna move from really from Nature Paper to Nature Paper. Next up is a story coming out of the Harvard Medical School. Uh, we're talking about the eye. So we shift from the heart to the eye. Reprogramming to youthful, reprogramming to recover youthful epigenetic information and restore vision. Uh, pretty simple but very powerful approach coming out of David Sinclair's lab uh, right down the hallway from where I used to work actually in Boston in the, in the, uh, in the new research building, I believe. So we know that aging is something that, unfortunately, all of us go through. I'm going through it right now. I think all of us in 2020 are going through a form of accelerated aging, if you know what I mean. So we're talking about aging and, uh, in particular, the retina as a model for, for aging. First author on this paper is Yanchen Lu. So we, uh, we can use the eye as a good model system to study aging and degeneration of the nervous system. And this paper is really cool because it's really the first successful attempt to reverse glaucoma-induced vision loss uh, rather than just study its progression, okay? And this is, you know, definitely going to be hopefully reproduced in other organs as well. But the general premise here was that the Sinclair lab used a cocktail of factors that all of us in IPS biology are very familiar with. That's OCT4, SOX2, and KLF4 to actually restore youthful methylation patterns and transcriptome in mouse retinal ganglion cells, both during aging and also after an injury phenotype. So what they what they did, you know, it's a very straightforward but beautiful study. They used AAV2 to actually deliver the OSK, everything outside of MIC, you know, the four canonical Yamanaka factors are OC4, SOX2, KLF4, and CMIC, right? But they didn't introduce CMIC here, obviously, because it has some oncogenic potential. But they found that just three OSK were enough to actually promote axon regeneration and retinal ganglion cell survival after an acute optic nerve injury. Okay, so that's in itself is very powerful that after an injury, you can actually use the OSK to restore a healthy phenotype. 
But then they kept on going, and they found that it's actually the DNA, DNA methylation that's required for this OSK-induced uh, regeneration phenotype. And not only that, uh, four weeks after expressing OSK, the uh, vision loss was reversed. These mice actually started seeing again, and they started seeing well. Uh, so even after this so, quote-unquote, uh, glaucoma-mimicking damage has already happened, four weeks after that's happened, you can still use OSK to res restore vision in these mice. And finally, uh, the restoration of this youthful vision is a, uh, it's a methylation effect, right? They, they further confirmed that, and they also restored vision in old mice, okay? So not only in this acute injury system, but this OSK was able to restore vision in older mice to a signal of youthful vision. So it's a I think a, a very powerful study because it's showing the power, you know, the the effect of OSK, three factors that we all know about, um, in reversing not only aging but also in injury phenotype in the eye. And the natural next step here is to ask, okay, if this works in the eye, what other tissues could OSK turn back the clock on, right? So it's, I think there are a lot more studies that are soon to come out of the Sinclair lab, which is really world known for its uh, focus on, on aging. Yes, you can imagine the headline. I mean, you saw the headlines when this story mm -hmm. came out. And um, I want you to try to imagine how many, I'm sure you got the same phone calls from all your, you know, the older people in your life whose vision is failing. And they read the headline, they're like, hey, I can, uh, they did it in mice. Um, obviously, no one's going to be injecting any OSK into their eyes, uh, and I'm not trying to say that that was like the end point here. I, I doubt that uh, Sinclair would, would claim that that is a, the therapeutic approach here. It's more understanding, as you said, that the methylation really is the, is the ticket. I think the irony here, though, is that Sinclair, as you, you know, alluded to or stated explicitly, is famous for the aging, but like specifically the aging study of aging and the the mitigating the the pathology surrounding aging using resveratrol um which was the last thing that everyone was like hey i could just pop a pill and i think the irony there is that that was like a a global like hey you take this one factor and it pretty much turns back the clock on everything um and that was a while ago that that was a big splash and now He's been, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure he's still going along that path too, but now we're going in kind of the other direction. We're talking about cellular reprogramming and, you know, like Yamanaka type stuff, which I, I wouldn't say is diametric opposite of resveratrol, but it's certainly in, in a different sphere. So Sinclair is clearly expanding his horizons like you, Arun. We're all trainees at the end, right? Forever. Mm -hmm. Forever learning. But hey, I mean, I actually think that maybe there is a translational orient to this and a translational angle to this. Maybe this is something they really are pursuing. I mean, yes, of course, you have to be extremely careful with introducing OSK into anything, right? It's extremely powerful and extremely powerful effect, as we're seeing with IPS reprogramming. But if the effect is this dramatic, then 
perhaps it's worth taking a closer look at when it comes to actually using it clinically. I don't know. Maybe, but I'll, I'll say this on the air. Nana and Pop-Pop, I know you're not listening, but if you are, <laughs> don't go to any stem cell clinics and get some OSK directed into your eye. We know how that ended. We talked about that in the past, about these rogue clinics that were uh, injecting mesenchymal stem cells into the eye. Do you remember that? And this is a good segue, actually, because I got a story about mesenchymal stem cells. In that case, it was a bad outcome. Uh, and go listen to the episode and you'll be reminded. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about something positive with MSCs. We've been positive on MSCs for a while now. You know, people are looking more closely at these cells, whereas before they were pretty loosely described, you know, everything was an MSC and you take it from anywhere, inject it everywhere. But um, we're looking more closely, okay? We're getting a more granular view. And, you know, it's important uh, in the blood, uh, in the marrow specifically, because while we've focused for decades on understanding the origin of all these, you know, myeloproliferative disorders and, you know, cancers in the blood, hematological malignancies, we understand the blood element of that, the niche is less well understood. Or we understand the niche really only as a driver of normal hematopoiesis, right? How does the niche support hematopoiesis? But there's another element there where, where in disease conditions, you often get bone marrow fibrosis, okay, where the, the normal hematopoietic cells and niche cells are replaced um, with scar tissue, okay? Um, and uh, deposition of extracellular matrix, all the hallmarks of, of fibrosis that you see typically oftentimes downstream of mesenchymal stem cells or myelofibroblasts, um, myofibroblasts, sorry, et cetera. Uh, and what this is accompanied by is a loss of normal hematopoiesis, and then you get this extramedullary hematopoiesis as the spleen takes over and gets big, right? Um, and as, as a downstream consequence of that fibrosis, the hematopoietic cells get all screwed up too, right? So we've understood a lot about those hematopoietic alterations, but the alterations in the non-hematopoietic compartment, um, we don't know that much about. Uh, and we, what we do know, though, is that there's like a morphological evolution. Looking at the, the bone marrow of these patients, you can see that there is like a prefibrotic phase, and it undergoes this stepwise progression to full-blown fibrosis. But, you know, the initial changes, the molecular events that underlie that switch and progression, again, unknown, okay, not characterized. Um, so this is uh, work coming in by Rebecca Schneider and her lab, who's at Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands. Um, and what their approach was, was to, to try and understand what are the, the, the relative contributions of mesenchymal stem cells. Because we know in solid organs, mesenchymal stem cells are often with dry fibrosis. So they went to the bone marrow and they said, what are the cells here? What are the cells they're doing? They've done previous work looking at these glee-positive myofibroblasts um, that here, uh, they went to look at these cells and other, and say, are there other cells that are also contributing to this? Uh, and what is the molecular signature and mechanism underlying this pre to post fibrotic transformation? What they found was that there were two uh, distinct MSC subsets that are pro-fibrotic, um, and that they kind of described their evolution. And the real key here, which, which I think is what made it into a cell stem cell paper, was that they, they found this kind of druggable uh, component here. They found that the, the alarmin complex, 
um, which is made up of S100A8 and S100A9, that that was a signature of progression in the murine model. And also, they found that there was a signature in patients uh, when you look at their stroma, also in the plasma. So it's like a circulating marker. Uh, so that's a nice outcome here in terms of biomarker and diagnostics. And then they show that there's this small molecule taskinamod that uh, inhibits the alarm and signaling, and that was able to rescue the fibrosis in the murine uh, model of this. So that was the big splash here is a therapeutic um, you know, identifying that this is a, a, the factor, this alarming is a factor in the process, but also showing that it could be druggable and targeted, uh, I think is what is going to make this a, a highly cited paper moving downstream and maybe an uh, uh, entree to clinical trial. Yeah, neat study. And like you're saying, the, I think the reason why this was in cell stem cells is because not only did they have a really nice basic approach, but they had the rescue with the, the Tuscana mod, right? So that's always a huge plus. We were lamenting before the show about how the numbers for their some of their single cell analyses were pretty low. But again, I have said this before, I'm a big fan of the, the limitations section that uh, the cell press journals have thrown into all papers now. And actually, the reason why their single cell numbers were pretty low is apparently liquid bone marrow is really tough to aspirate in advanced myelofibrosis. So they're not able to get too many cells for that reason. And so they're saying straight up, they're saying that, yeah, we know this is a problem. We know we only got a few hundred, maybe a thousand cells for our analysis, but we're going to expand the data set in a, in a later cohort. Yeah. I mean, hey, I wish I could get my papers through with that. Well, a lot of we're gunners. My editors don't listen to my, my uh, we're gunners, but I guess it works for Rebecca Schneider. Um, I, I do agree, though, like, you know, there's fundamental limitations when you're working with patient samples, right? So I, I think they're off the hook there. But even so, I mean, I, I do, I'm not like being actually critical here, but I, it's just an open question for me as someone who just, you know, I had a story just now with, a bunch of single cell, and it's not the numbers. I mean, not for nothing, but we had over 100,000 cells. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not like flexing on number of cells here. I think that's silly. But the 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 what I what I will say here is that when you have limited cells, and in a mouse system where I think maybe that's like controllable, I, I think you have to be careful with the Surat. You know, the Surat does this unbiased clustering analysis, and and that was kind of what identified the original populations of the story. They were like, we've got these thousand cells, which is not a ton, to be honest. And they were like, we did unsupervised clustering, and it showed us these six or whatever populations that we subdivided. So like, I'll just say that when you do the Surat, oftentimes, like, no joke, Arun, you do Surat on your computer, and then you do it on someone else's computer, the same script, and the UMAP plots look different. I'm not saying that the clustering is different, but like there's nuance here. And I, I don't know that I'd trust a, a, a computer program that's still like under, it's, I wouldn't say it's in beta, but it's constantly being revised to tell me the biology. But I will say it gives you an amazing lead. Um, and, and the key thing there, though, is to, to validate and to corroborate and verify on the back end. So yes, I think they, they'll expand. We're going to expand the patient cohort. I think we need a we're going to on validating those cells, isolating them by independently corroborated markers that show up in seek, pulling them out of there, 
and then you know doing some more functional analysis, and I'm sure that's going to be forthcoming from the Schneider Lab. All I got to say, Dalon, is don't forget to update your version of R, okay? <laughs> when you have problems from your computer to my computer, that's a lot of times that's what's going on. It's a different R version, which having done and having dealt with Syrah in the past, that's a lot of times that is the issue, which is very painful because you got to go back and reinstall all your packages and... Ugh, I don't want to think about that right now. Moving on, Nature Biotech paper is our last paper for the roundup. This is coming out of another lab that's right down the hallway from David Sinclair's lab over in uh, HMS Genetics, the one and only George Church lab. First author here is Alex Eng, who I believe I believe is a graduate student in the Church Lab. Uh, I think we overlapped for a little bit when I was in Boston. Title of the paper is a comprehensive library of human transcription factors for cell fate engineering. This is a really neat study because it's using human pluripotent stem cells to improve a whole slew of differentiation protocols, and in particular, uh, transcription factor isoforms. And they were able to basically develop something called the human TF-ohm, the human transcription factor-ohm. You know, not the catchiest name, but it's a comprehensive library that contains uh, like 1,500 transcription factors and 1,700 transcription factor splice isoforms. And they screened the library across three different pluripotent stem cell lines and discovered that just around 300, 290 transcription factors uh, are able to induce differentiation and get this four days as short as four days without actually altering uh, soluble or biomechanical cues, like, for example, like throwing small molecules on there. So just by introducing select transcription factors into pluripotent stem cell culture, you can get a very fast, very effective, dramatic differentiation phenotype into a variety of different cell types that you're interested in. So they actually use four of their hits in their TFOM to reprogram pluripotent stem cells into neurons, fibroblasts, oligodendrocytes, and also something that you're interested in, vascular endothelial uh, cells or endothelial-like cells that are actually molecularly and functionally similar, not only to what you would get from a normal differentiation protocol that would take weeks, but also pretty similar to primary cells, okay? So it's a cell autonomous approach, and it actually, the other cool thing was it enabled parallel programming of pluripotent stem cells into multiple cell types simultaneously. So if you mix and match the transcription factors that you're actually throwing into your pluripotent stem cell culture, you can get very effective but very selective differentiation of just three or four different cell lineages in a single population. So really powerful. And they included some uh, oligodendrocyte-inducible pluripotent stem cells. Uh, to, they mixed, actually, these oligodendrocyte-inducible pluripotent stem cells with unmodified PSCs to actually generate cerebral organoids, which they uh, showed that could actually generate myelin as well, also very powerful. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's a really powerful approach. Um, and I, I love this because it's... Improving differentiation, something that we're all trying to do. Uh, a lot of us just mix and match different growth factors, small molecules to 
induce differentiation down the lineage of interest. But of course, you always have a mixed bag of cells, right? You never have 100% of the cell that you're really interested in. But they're showing here that it's, it really just comes down to the genetics. If you can find a master regulator, a master transcriptional regulator, such as an ETV2, an NKS3-1 that they show here, then you can get the cell type that you want in the course of days hmm. as opposed to weeks. Um, and I'm sure you have a lot to talk about when it comes to this particular study, especially the ETV2 angle, because uh, I think it follows up on a paper that you actually uh, worked on in years past. Is that right? Yeah, we had a story about direct reprogramming of uh, amniotic cells to endothelium, and ETV2 is the primary inducer there. It's the master regulator. And Shaheen actually just had another story. We should have him on about that with ETV2 making these kind of pan-endothelial cells that could, could do everything, super cells. Um, so, yes, not surprisingly, ETV2 uh, was potent here uh, in direct induction. But I think the nuance that was nice is they showed that it was this one isoform in particular uh, that led to like 99% versus the other isoforms that were either, you know, not effective, two of them, or one that was mildly effective. So that kind of actually was revelatory for me because we had had some... Um, some complaints about people not being able to reproduce uh, the, the level of, of reprogramming that we were able to achieve. And I think it may have been because they were using the wrong isoform, which we actually raised that possibility in the past, but we got a lot of grief about it. Talk to George Church, people. And speaking <laughs> of George Church, I mean, this is something that only could come out of the church lab, in my view. Um, and it's, it's I, I, I love it, but I'm in two worlds, you know? There's like that part of me that's like, you got to grow the thing. And this is the alternate of that, you know? This is where we're going to make the thing and we're going to make it so robustly and with such precision and specificity and we're going to do it on a scale that's insane i mean the fact that they could throw this uh, panel they talk about it, like oh yeah we just made this screen and came up with 300 i mean who's like checking out each one of those things your boy your mm -hmm. poor that poor grad student suffering but um you know only in the church lab where they have the money and he has that mad scientist kind of ethos that led, you know, remember they had the galloping horse that they programmed into E. coli. Uh, you know, th this is the kind of stuff that comes out of the church lab that no one would ever think of. But everybody, you know, perks up when they hear the story because it's like out of science fiction. Church lab at its finest, right? This is the same lab that's willing, working on the bringing back the woolly mammoth. And <laughs> I don't know how that's going, but that's another one of their claims to fame. And hey, you know, he might be a poor grad student, but perhaps not for long, because in typical church lab fashion, they did start a company for based on this paper. Of course, of course, probably his 20th or, or, or more company. Um, another connection, church lab, you know, our guest, Samir, she uh, was co-mentored by uh, Dr. Church. So maybe she can give us some insight into that mad science. But before we get to that interview, I got a message from Stem Cell, who would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover dash organoids. 
All right, guys, today I am delighted to introduce to you Samira Musa, who is assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering, also associate professor in medicine in the Division of Nephrology at Duke University, mine and Arun's alma mater. So this is a special episode. We're doing a Blue Devil thing here. The Musa Lab is interested in understanding how molecular signals and biophysical forces guide organ development and physiology and how these processes can be therapeutically harnessed to treat human disease. They focus on engineering stem cell fate for applications in human kidney disease, extra renal complications, and therapeutic development. Dr. Musa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Daylon and Arun, for having me on this show. I'm, I'm very thrilled to be here. And knowing that um, this is all Blue Devil on the show right now, it's, <laughs> it's super exciting. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. And so you are a new PI at the one only Duke University, right? But you've been on you've been focusing on pluripotent stem cells for a while now. So for more than a decade, actually starting off working on synthetic polymers and hydrogels to control stem cell proliferation and differentiation. But lately, your claim to fame has been your work focusing on the in vitro disease modeling side of things, right? And particularly working on a tissue type that doesn't get a lot of love on the show and not a, a type that not a whole lot of stem cell biologists work on, which is the kidney, right? And so a lot of snooty biomedical engineers and biomedical researchers might view the kidney as little more than like a simple filtration system, but it's so much more than that, right? So as someone who is helping to carry the torch for the kidney disease modeling field, and before we actually get into your two nature papers, could you tell us generally why it's so important to study diseases of the kidney? Yeah, um, thank you for, um, you bring up really, really good points about um, the field of um, kidney nephrology and um, kidney understanding human kidney biology. So I actually think that one of the reasons why um, the field has not been studied um, as extensively as other um, um, areas in stem cell biology is also because we have very little understanding of the human kidney biology and um, how the organ develops. Um, and, and its function. So those challenges also make it a little bit um, uh, perhaps sometimes less attractive to um, some scientists or maybe a bit more challenging generally to, to approach um, how, uh, how to uh, differentiate stem cells into kidney cells and, and just imagine trying to model human kidney function outside of the body, because um, unlike a lot of other tissue types with the kidneys, you're talking about a, a highly vascularized um, tissue that also requires very um, specific fluidic circuit. So just having our standard traditional tissue culture environment might not accurately model a lot of the complex functions of the kidney, which are also very important for disease progression. So I think these complexities also influence the decision, um, or at least um, some of the interest um, in that field. Um, on a more, um, I guess, uh, from a practical standpoint, I think that uh, understanding human kidney biology is important for so many diseases. We know that uh, most patients with, or a significant number of patients with diabetes also have kidney disease. And um, a lot of heart, um, a lot of the drugs that actually are meant to work on patients with heart disease 
actually work on their kidneys. It doesn't, drugs don't work directly on the heart. So it's important to understand how the kidneys work and how they influence the function of other organs so that we can better understand um, diseases of not just the kidney, but some of these other um, uh, diseases that are so widespread. Um, some other important um, factors that most certainly influence my decision to go into the field is the fact that kidney disease is so prevalent. I think um, uh, most people, myself included, before I started working in this field, didn't even realize how prevalent kidney disease um, was or still is. There are more patients suffering from kidney disease than, uh, than diabetes, COVID-19 disease, um, uh, uh, HIV, AIDS, and um, other diseases all combined um, worldwide. So it, it, it's quite a prevalent disease. And I think that it, it, we have about more than 10% of the world population suffering from the disease. And in the United States, it's actually even worse with more than 14% of the adult population suffering from kidney disease. And there are no targeted therapies. Mm -hmm. So it, it certainly is important to, um, to understand uh, human kidney um, biology. I could also kind of just add a little bit about how um, it remains very challenging to understand this in a way that's relevant to humans. So we know that unlike a lot of other cell um, organs, some other organ types have actually um, been uh, much easier to study, relatively, of course, um, easier to study using animal models. The kidneys have been one of the organs in humans that remain very challenging to actually understand biologically how it develops and functions by using animal models, prim primarily because we already know that there are divergent pathways and how human kidneys develop than mice um, or other animals' um, kidneys um, develop and function. So most of the time, the pathways that are identified simply do not apply to humans. Hmm. And so it's been very challenging to extrapolate um, the results from traditional ways of doing things to um, human kidney um, disease. And so it really is important. And I think the stem cell field is um, probably one of the best tools we have to help understand some of these processes in a way that's directly relevant to humans. Wow, you make a very strong case. There's a lot of people that just, you know, if they were leaning towards the kidney, now they're, you know, full, full bore. Um, but let's talk about disease. You know, there's a lot of diseases that arise specifically from the kidney, you know, and then as you mentioned there, there's all these conditions that kind of converge on kidney dysfunction and or failure uh, and very, you know, massive prevalence, you know. Uh, so all these probably would benefit from like a regenerative, regenerative approach. And I know we talk about how you're focused on modeling and you, we're going to talk about your, your nature papers in a minute with the, the kidney on a chip. Um, but first, what are like the, the obstacles to therapeutic application of IPS-derived kidney tissue. You know, looking at the literature, I see that the differentiation protocols seem pretty tight. We just had Matthias Lutoff on the show. He was talking about like the synergy of bioprinting and organoids, you know, taking these two principles of, you know, printing as well as self-organization and converging. And we had Sergio Pasca talking to us about how he's combining multiple organoids to make these assembloids. So all these things are coming together. What, what are the major obstacles left for applying this therapeutically? 
Yeah, I think um, in, in the kidney field, it's certainly not. Uh, we're really not at the point where we're, we have full understanding or have models that fully recapitulate entire functions of the human um, kidney yet. So I think as attractive and exciting as um, things like um, kidney organoids are, they do have many of the limitations that just about any kidney organoid has in the sense that, which includes the fact that um, they are um, usually mimicking early, very early stages of development, typically about the first, second trimester. So we know that a lot of kidney diseases are postnatal in nature, right? So um, it requires um, having models that can more closely mimic the um, mature and functional state of the of the kidney. So our lab is definitely making advances in that with specific focus in the glomerulus. In fact, we developed a method that differentiates, we can take um, human iPS cells and differentiate them specifically into the kidney um, glomerulopodocytes, which are the specialized epithelial cells in the glomerulus. And one of the reasons why I'm excited about this is the fact that we're able to obtain cells that are um, developmentally more mature than any other um, uh, system that we have. So by integrating those into technologies like the organs on chips pl platform, we're able to introduce the vasculature that's necessary for establishing that kidney filtration barrier, right, a glomerular filtration barrier, and looking at what happens when you flow a blood or a blood substitute in the system and how whether it's able to selectively filter toxins um, and other molecules um, in blood. We don't have that kind of functionality in our in the traditional um, organoid system. You can't actually you can't actually um, filter blood through those um, systems. So um, I think we're very early in our ability to um, design these systems in a way that is beginning to recapitulate some of the early stages of development. But I don't think that it's advanced at a stage where we're we have functional tissue models that can. Um, accurately model the disease so that we better understand what the disease mechanisms are and develop therapeutics. So I think if, if our disease models aren't, um, uh, are far from accurate, I think it's fair to also um, uh, expect that we might not more accurately develop or identify therapeutics that would be um, applicable in vivo in a patient, um, mm -hmm. for example. So I think that we do have some ways to go. And and again, I just want to emphasize that um, a lot of these technologies like the organoid is, is great, but to suggest that uh, it, it functions like a kidney, uh, it's a bit, um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Right. But let's talk some yeah. more about those in vitro technologies, right? right. Even though mm -hmm. we might not be there with the the clinical applications necessarily for the IPS technologies yeah. and the organoid technologies, mm -hmm. your lab has really focused on the in vitro applications, right? Absolutely. So you actually, so you published those back-to-back -back nature protocol and nature biomedical engineering papers a couple years ago when you were in Don Ingber's lab in Boston. And like you alluded to, you're focusing on the direct differentiation of iPSCs into mature kidney podocytes and the establishment of the glow 
glomerulus organ chip, like you alluded to. And it's been pretty tough to differentiate mature human kidney cells like you're talking about. So I think your approach was really useful to the field. But then, you know, you took it a step further and actually developed this organ chip. And you're talking about the ways that you might be able to use this chip for, you know, toxin filtration and, you know, in vitro modeling and that sort of thing. But what's the next step of this chip? How can you actually make these glomerulus chips even better? Is it the introduction of other chips that you might be able to, con to connect to the kidney chip or vascularization? So what's next for these organ chips? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And I actually kind of wanted to just um, give you some insight on how this project even started. So we, we were actually challenged by DARPA um, when I was a postdoc to create um, uh, in vitro models of about 10 different organs, uh, and the kidney was one of them. And the group had not been able to develop a model of the kidney glomerulus because that is the primary site for blood filtration in the kidney. So um, some other labs, including Donning Burst Lab at the time, had established a model of the proximal tubule where reabsorption um, uh, and things like that happen in the kidneys. But we know that the primary function of the kidneys is to fil um, to filter blood and remove toxins from from blood, and we couldn't we couldn't um, we didn't have a model to that could do that that could basically perform this critical function. So um, when I joined the team, I just thought, well, um, why couldn't we do? I'm trying to just understand why we couldn't do this, and the main challenge was that we didn't have access to functional human kidney podocyte. And there are no commercial sources of these cells. As you can imagine, it requires highly invasive procedure. These aren't um, self-renewing populations of cells from the kidney. So if they're even derived from discarded kidney tissues, they would either be diseased um, and not uh, be as useful for understanding what's normal versus disease, or you cannot propagate them um, to get a substantial number of them. So the idea was to establish this method so that we can have access to potentially unlimited supply of these uh, critical cell type for design, for creating a, an in vitro model of the glomerulus. And so for me, I... Was, I have to say, I'm, it's one of the most exciting projects I have worked on, and and it really was enabled also by being in an environment that um, gave me the independence to pursue um, a direction that wasn't necessarily the way that things were done um, in that environment. So it's, I remember Don saying, "Well, this is not a stem cell biology lab," and but I came, I joined this lab with a stem cell biology experience. So. When I took on this project, I just asked myself, well, what are the what, what is known about how the kidney develops? What factors are necessary for differentiating these cells into the desired cell type? And that informed my strategy for developing the method. And so when we were able to obtain these cells and then characterize them and notice that they were um, so specialized in their function, we thought, well, we have the engineering capabilities um, uh, in a way that um, is not even accessible to many in the field. Can we integrate these cells into these um, microfluidic organ and chip systems? We have an idea what the structure of the glomerular filtration barrier looks like. We know we need dedicated fluidic channels um, for urinary compartment in the vasculature. And so those all helped us design a platform that would allow us to integrate these cells um, into this chip and then um, model the function of the glomerulus. So now that we have the model established, um, in my lab, we're really focused um, 
mostly on trying to use this platform to understand human kidney, um, the mechanisms of kidney disease, and um, some of the processes that are altered during um, disease progression. I also envision that the platform would be useful for toxicity testing, because we know that about 75% of drugs actually fail during clinical trials, partly due to toxicity to the kidneys. And so, and these are usually not uh, always predictable, or they're not predicted before these um, drug candidates get into human clinical trials. So I'm um, hopeful that we could potentially use some of these platforms to um, identify some of these drug candidates that might end up being toxic to humans during clinical trial. Uh, we also have um, projects that are um, aimed at really extending, so kind of really extending the engineering capabilities. So we have been able to model a fun one functional unit, the structure and function of um, the glomerular capillary wall. We know that the kidneys are much more complex than that. So you alluded, you alluded to strategies where you can develop different um, uh, models of tissues and then put them together to create a more complex organ. So we're at the stage where we're trying to develop the next generation of these um, organ and chip models by integrating complete um, capillary um, systems. So instead of just looking at that, blood filtration interface with that barrier. We're designing them so we have complete capillary-like um, systems that would pretty much mimic the, the whole structure of the Bowman's capsule or the glomerular capillaries in that encased um, structure for um, blood um, filtration. Yeah, wow. I mean, this is it's it's amazing to me because the the pace of the progression, you know, it was it was it didn't seem like so long ago. I guess that we were doing these kind of organs on chips, and now we're talking about putting multiple chips together. You know what I mean? It's this. It's amazing. Um, and I actually, I can say, I remember your that paper, the Nature BME paper. Not only because it, you know it's a great story, but also uh, that the journal had just come out. Uh, and I remember I, I was looking at every issue in that first year to see if it was a good fit for some other story that I had cooking. Uh, ultimately, it was not. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember it. And I also see that in your CV that you have like a Jove story. So you're like, you know, you're no stranger to the new media and these new formats. Um, you did a virtual talk at ISSCR 2020. We were covering that. I remember that. Um, you're probably a heavy tweeter, but, uh, you know, looking at your CV, very impressive. You got all the grants, you got all the awards. Sure. But also there's like press, you got a lot of press, a uh, hundred inspiring black scientists over here. You got the rising stars and BME over there. You've been winning on a very public scale, prominently winning for a decade now. Um, so for the trainees out there and for my own curiosity as well, how important do you think that, that kind of media exposure. Of course, the awards and all the plaudits are important um, to establish your name uh, and your fundability. But how important do you think the kind of like the media exposure and the general PR are to a successful career path? Wow. I mean, that's a, you know, that sounds like an easy question, but it's actually kind of hard to answer to that because I, I think that um, 
it's of course really important. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and I'm just thinking if this is, if I'm talking to a trainee, how do I encourage them to um, engage in activities that might get them that kind of exposure? And I, I can, I have to admit that I think that I, I feel that I have people who would talk about me in rooms that I'm not present. And I think, um, that, I've been fortunate to have mentors who've been very supportive of me, encouraged me to um, to really, frankly, just go where my ideas take me and not be limited by um, where my training left me. And so I, I think that having people like that who are willing to um, to really tell you the truth and give you that um, honest um, feedback and guidance, usually if you're responsive to them and you do well, they're, they, you know, they would make sure that you, you get the, um, uh, maybe the acknowledgement they believe you, you deserve or, um, or at least get the exposure you need to advance your career. So I have to admit that I think a lot of these, um, came to me by surprise. Um, not that, there aren't things that I personally initiated. Um, um, but I do think that it was also not too surprising from the sense that I, I do try to put my best in everything I do. So I, I don't, it's not that I don't think it's earned, but I think I do have to give credit, um, to people who are supportive, not just intellectually, but also mindful of how that, their support impact my career advancement. Hmm. So let's talk about those yeah. mentors, right? So you did your postdoctoral training in snowy Boston in joint in George Church's lab and also in Donningber's lab, as we were alluding to. Um, and Donningber in particular is really a pioneer in bioengineering, even though he might not necessarily be a stem cell biologist. He's a yeah. bioengineer guru and icon. And it seems like so many of the top organ on chip papers have come from his lab. And a lot of these engineering developments from the Ingber lab have turned into products and companies and opening, you know, in hopes of actually improving the field of in vitro toxicology and maybe ultimately totally replacing the mouse as a model system. That would be kind of a dream, right? So tell us more about that time in Boston and your time as a postdoctoral fellow at the at the Weiss Institute. Mm -hmm. So what was it like to actually train in, in the Ingber lab? You know, as a scientist, I think being at the Weiss is it's like the ultimate playground. You for me, I think I was just <laughs> I was blown away by um, by just being in an environment where you can be challenged to do something, uh, but then also supported um, in every way possible. If you at least, of course, if you come up with too many bad ideas, that wouldn't work out too well. But but um, Don was very supportive. And, and I remember um, even when he wasn't sure how I wanted, what direction I wanted to take something, if I communicated to him how I'm thinking through it and then just um, laid out a rationale for why it's worth give, um, giving it a shot, he would just be like, okay, go try it. And I also have this habit of setting timelines for myself saying, okay, I'm going to give this a shot for maybe about four, five, six months. If it doesn't work, then we're going to have to maybe refocus. And I think a combination of that and having the resources to pursue some of these directions, um, was, um, 
was just um, incredible. And I think Don was also the kind of person, and both him and George Church, I mean, one of the things they always advised me on is to just kind of not being afraid of failure, right? So if you are going to um, try an idea, um, yeah, there's a chance it might work, but you should be comfortable with the fact that it might fail. And then just think about how you use that information to guide the direction you end ultimately end up taking the project. So I think just being in an environment where, you know, failing, failing is like not, um, it, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing because some of the most important projects and some of the most exciting directions that they've taken have usually come out of, uh, projects that initially maybe failed, um, or perhaps didn't work out the way that they were, um, expected to. And so I, I, to me, that was a really powerful, um, uh, that was really powerful realization and being in an environment that's supportive of that was absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't stress enough, um, how they, they are support. I think you, if, you, if you do ask, if you do ask, they, they would be there and they, they would, they would help. They provide you with the feedback you need. Um, to, they're very direct. And I think to me, that was very important to just having people, uh, mentors who can communicate directly. I, I didn't have to spend too much energy trying to guess what they're thinking. And so I, I think it, it does help with, um, being, um, productive and having a sense of, um, direction when you're not so sure where to go or which path to take. Yeah, I can imagine. Arun had a similar experience over there in Cambridge. I can imagine uh, it must have been very exciting to make that move. This is no shade on Wisconsin. I know, you know, it's the birthplace of human ESC research, right? But um, Cambridge, right? That's where dreams collide with reality. And that's for better and worse. Uh, as you just alluded to all those failures, but, you know, on the path towards, you know, resounding success most of the time. Um, and then there's you with this big paper and the patent I saw you got off of that. Uh, maybe some talk about licensing or like starting a company. I know a lot of people come, they have a big paper out of the beast and suddenly there's a company. Um, so as someone who's still kind of at the beginning of, of their career, you know, you could have bent more towards the industry biotech path if you wanted to. You could have been the CEO of something, your own company. Uh, do you have any insight to share again to, to the people behind you maybe who might be in a similar position? Um, you know, are there any pitfalls? Do you think there's kind of a trap to, you know, starting a company as opposed to, to staying on the academic path? Or maybe do you aspire towards those kind of commercial ends alongside your academic ambition? Yeah, absolutely. Alongside the academic ambition, um, for sure. But I think I've, um, at heart, I've, I feel like I've always been an academic, um, and I can't really imagine my life um, <laughs> without, um, being in science and, um, academia or having some of the flexibility that I think academia affords, um, scientists to be able to explore some of these, um, uh, the questions that, you know, excite you, of course, you have to be able to get funding for it. Um, but, but I think it affords us with a level of, um, um, independence that I personally think, um, I find attractive, at least attractive for, for me intellectually. I, most of my interest in industries really being able to see technologies come out of the lab, um, and not just, um, 
stay in the publications and on the walls, but really um, hopefully um, change um, um, patients' lives in the future. So you notice that most, at least for me, for every project in my lab, and for every new person who joins the lab and we're thinking about what project they work on, I always ask, who is going to benefit from this? Uh, who could potentially benefit from this science? Um, and 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 how? And how would it change the field? So I, some of these are usually leading questions and how we, um, what projects I even prioritize or decide to focus on and what kind of questions we ask when we're um, pursuing the science. So, so yes, I do have interest in the commercial or the um, technology transfer or uh, 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 translation aspect of science, but I think I would always be a, a scientist um, first. <laughs> so even though you're an academic first, you're at yeah. <laughs> an amazing place to kind of bridge that gap, right? Mm -hmm. To bridge the gap between yeah. basic science and translational yeah. biology, right? Yeah. You're at Duke University, and it's no secret that we're fans of Duke University on the show, which is, of course, where Daylon and I did our undergrad studies back in the day. And we've actually had a lot of pod, uh, you know, PIs on the podcast who actually have connections to, to Duke in some fashion. We had Joy Wu, who you know, I believe she did her uh, part of her medical training at Duke, and Todd McDevitt, who I think was an undergrad there as well. So we've had PIs who have had spent some time in Durham at some point in their training, and you decided to set up your own lab at Duke. And it seems over the last few years, Duke has actually really boosted its research prospects in stem cell biology and regenerative medicine, especially with the development of this new Regeneration Next initiative. I think that's right. Yes. And I think that's led by Ken Poss. Yeah. So Daylon and I could go on forever about our time at Duke and about the amazing food in Durham. But as a new PI down there in the research triangle, what have you loved about your time at Duke University and what makes it a great place for stem cell biology and bioengineering as well? Um, absolutely the people. Um, I, you know, the people are amazing. And I think that um, just being able to collaboration wise, I think um, it's not, we go from talking to actually um, collaborating on projects fairly quickly and uh, the proximity of the schools of medicine and engineering are quite literally about four minutes walk uh, apart. Um, uh, the basic science, the biological um, departments and cell biology, uh, they're all really centralized in terms of location. So I think it makes it, uh, it, it really makes it fun. Um, whether you're a basic scientist or thinking about how, what a clinician thinks about your science or how they would, uh, whether they would be interested in using a technology or developing, they will be right down the hallway for uh, for me to talk to them. And so I think it really, for me, it's it, it really does make it an exciting environment to be, um, to, to do science. Uh, uh, uh. And other things I've really loved about uh, Duke, my initial impressions when I visited Duke was definitely how beautiful the campus looked. And I remember just um, driving and thinking, I would really love to drive, um, come to work every day, um, just <laughs> even if it's just to see this view. <laughs> and so, um, so and, and it's quite pleasant, uh, I think, just kind of 
loving the environment itself. I find that it's um, it, it boosts my energy and definitely makes it really exciting um, uh, to, to come to work. And, and the co my colleagues are absolutely um, amazing. And being between, for me, being an engineer and in medicine has been absolutely um um, critical, really, for some of the directions that I envision taking um, uh, in our lab from both the basic science and engineering perspective to hopefully get more translational with our work. I think being affiliated with both um, departments and schools uh, really provides us with the resources and the type of um, interactions with colleagues that we would need to advance um, some of these um, technologies. But I also find that um, uh, nephrology, for example, here is very excited about the technologies that we bring um, uh, to, to, to the field. And so uh, I think that also contributes to uh, how like how we collaborate with folks and people have uh, some very um, challenging problems they've been wanting to address and maybe they want to look at it's relevant to humans and um, actually using human tissues. And so it, there seems to be natural synergy in, in what we do with um, what others are also hoping to accomplish. So I think all of these together really, truly make it exciting environment. Um, I can go on and on about what I love about Duke and, um, and, and Durham. Uh, honestly, I love the greenery. I mean, I, I lived, uh, so I went to graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin, um, with Laura, Laura's now at, at MIT actually, but I started with her when she was in Madison, Wisconsin. It was of course very cold. I thought Binghamton had prepared me well to, to live in um, Madison, but not really. I realized <laughs> that um, most of my winter jackets were turned into spring jackets when I went to um, Wisconsin. So when I moved to Boston, Boston was actually relatively warm for me, and uh, but everybody complained about how cold it was in Boston. And so over time, of course, I also adapted and started complaining that Boston was cold. So um, <laughs> that all made uh, North Carolina even more attractive. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and then I, I really love greenery. Um, uh, I, I love it. I think um, we live in the woods pretty much. And uh, just part of my mm -hmm. joy for the day is just driving through the woods to and yep. from work. <laughs> Yeah, Duke, so beautiful, <laughs> as I remember it. Um, yeah, we could go on and on, although now that my sons are approaching the age where they could get themselves into trouble, my memories would have to be, or the record at least, heavily redacted. Okay, we don't want to go too deep there. I'm exposed a little bit. Um, but I also remember very vividly about my time at Duke that people would... Um, totally fall. You know, I was pre-med by way, you know, to get into grad school for science. Um, most people were going to med school, but all my pre-med friends who then went uh, BME, they just disappeared socially. They just went away. That's how hardcore the BME major was. Um, but now I can see that they had the last laugh because they got to work with the likes of you. Um, so ha ha for them. But um Along those lines, you know, Arun mentioned Regeneration Next, and a major pillar of that effort is a promotion of an inclusive and diverse space in the research triangle. And you're, you know, originally from Ghana, you've been in New York, you went to Wisconsin, Boston, you've been all over the place, so you can take care of yourself. But what's your um, expectations or 
do you have any kind of apprehension about the, you know, the role, the outsized role that race plays in that atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, that's a, you, you know, as a, as an, as a black uh, scientist, I think uh, it, I definitely am very aware of these challenges. Uh, it's been nearly everywhere I've been, um, even in, in cities that might actually um, be more diverse, the institution itself, or maybe my department, I might be the only one in my department or, or sometimes in, in, in the lab or, so I'm kind of, I've been in a lot of places where, um, you know, just sometimes inside or in the department might not reflect the population outside um, of the school. And one of the things that I've realized um, over time is that um, you, you might have to do more as a, you know, as a black scientist to kind of prove yourself. But um, once you establish that, people was, could start recognizing the science um, and, and, and I think at Duke, I'm of course fairly new to, to Duke, but I feel that, uh, Duke has been, I've been impressed with some of the initiatives that they have, um, and some of the resources that they're providing to not just faculty, but students and staff. So I think overall it's a very, very supportive environment. And, uh, and, and so in so many ways, even though it might be historically in a location that has been viewed uh, a certain way, I think they've made some very um, um, progressive um, efforts and um, implemented some initiatives that I hope would make it a much more welcoming environment mm. um, for everyone. I can speak to what I do in my lab because I think at the university level, I don't really have a lot of control over that one. But in my lab, um, I really do make sure that I, I encourage open communication and make students very aware um, or try to make them aware of some of the um, some of the experiences that everyone brings into that space. Like um, you, you may, some students might, you may see a scientist who is an African-American, um, but even if they've been very, very successful, they might have had to deal with or experience or go through some very challenging circumstances to get to where they are. So kind of being sensitive and um, in, informed or kind of being open to being educated about some of these challenges that individuals face because of differences in background, I think is very important. And I encourage that in my lab. And I think that doing that has helped us as a group to be more open and also kind of identifying when things happen. And it's not, um, it, it's not, it doesn't align with our values. Um, in the lab. And I think many times people really know what the right thing to do is, but they just have to either care enough to act or know and have some strategies on how to approach things. And so I find all of that important. One, I should also point out that one of the, when I was thinking of where to um, go to for a faculty position, 
I found that even though um, I might be the only one of one of very few in my department, that across Duke, there are highly successful um, black scientists um, all across the campus in different departments. Um, and so for me, that was really telling, um, or at least it made me feel that, you know, I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't be maybe the, if I come here and I'm successful, I wouldn't have to just uh, think about being the only successful African-American. So it, it, it mattered to me that I see other African-Americans, whether they were in my department or not, that they've been successful here at Duke. And that that was true in multiple departments. Fortunately, I actually did um, notice that when I was interviewing and that also did influence my decision to come to Duke, actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think visibility is really everything. Yeah. And as mm. as a recent guest on the podcast, uh, Natasha Muwinigla actually said, and you know, just seeing that um, you are a successful African-American woman scientist is an exceptionally powerful thing. And as a recent alum of Duke University, I can echo what you're saying. It's for me, at least it was nothing but a very diverse and very welcoming environment for students and also for faculty. So I think it's been an incredible place to to be. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining us here today, yeah. uh, uh, Samira. You know, it's yeah. been it's been a pleasure talking to you. And not only just because you're a, a scientist at Duke University, but you're also <laughs> an exceptionally accomplished stem cell biologist and working in a very hot topic right now in, in tissue and, and organ engineering and organ on chip biology. So before we actually let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions. So starting off, what non science book are you reading or that you've read recently that's awesome and you want to share with our listeners? Okay. So um, one that I really, really love, and I have like reread this, um, I try to reread this um, whenever I'm uh, vacant, making, not vacant, making a big move in my career has been The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And um, it's, it's fairly simple. It's just um, four... Uh, it's just, it's for agreement, but it's actually, uh, I think it's really, really powerful. And I can maybe just briefly just tell, so one being, um, being impeccable with your words. Um, the second, not taking anything personally. Um, the third being, uh, not making assumptions. I find this very important for science as well and always doing, um, your best. So for me, I think these are really powerful um, uh, kind of guiding principles, both at the personal level, but also professionally. I, I think that almost every time something happens or goes wrong or seems to be going wrong, it appears that one of these things have been violated. <laughs> so one of these rules have been violated. So I, I think that it's truly a powerful um, uh, uh uh, book um, and and just um, concept to to have and think about um, regularly as a person, um, both at, at at the individual level, but also professionally, and how we interact with people as well. Well, it's clear, at least to me, uh, that you're you're really an adherent to the first of those principles. You are impeccable with your words and speech. It's fun to listen to you. Um, so we'll ring one more, one more series of uh, answers out of you. 
um, very quickly fill in the blanks. First, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? I think the ability to model human biology and understand how humans respond to um, drugs, uh, I think it's really the direction that um, stem cell biology is going to make um, a huge impact in. First clinical inklings probably going to be there. I agree. Uh, next, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without my mom. Oh, that's very yeah, sweet. Absolutely. Well, she deserves the and credit. I, yeah, absolutely. And I can quickly just say that nobody could have instilled the value of education in me better than she did. So I absolutely would not be here without her. Mom, ditto. I said that to you too. Okay. <laughs> next, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Yard work. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> the yard will yeah, be fine. I love, I love when it looks nice, but, but yeah. well, you have a you have a young you have a young child. I hear that's what you made that one for. Um, last, <laughs> if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on my way out, it's my students. Oh, there you're yeah. a real I, sentimentalist. This is something that I actually do. I mean, I know that they can move, you know, but I actually, whenever we have the fire, um, if we have a fire drill or even if it's just a test, I always walk and I cannot leave the building without checking whether they've left. Um, I go in the lab. If there's anybody in there, they have to leave with me. Um, yeah, That's yeah. so sweet. In fact, I don't think anybody's actually given that answer, <laughs> which I don't know if that says something about our guests. But I don't know. <laughs> Well, we're all differently abled. Maybe, maybe you know, some cases they have more. They're more invested in their 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 trainee's ability to get out of the lab themselves. But um, it yeah. seems like yeah. Samir doesn't have that faith. Yeah, I'm curious what the most um, popular answers were. I guess lab notebooks could be important, but yes. um, but I think um, you get a lot of laptop. You get a lot of laptop. It's all from the boomers who aren't aware of uh, the cloud. These days, if you save everything on the cloud, you know, you, you'll be fine without your laptop. <laughs> you don't know. There's <laughs> hackers out there, Samir. Watch out. Anyway, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun for us. Uh, we hope it's been fun for you and for the listeners, for sure. You'll have to come back soon to give us an update on your uh, really meteoric rise in the, in the field. Uh, we'll be we'll excited to hear to. that. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. And um, yeah, I, I truly do appreciate also that this is the Blue Devils edition. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's great meeting you both. Yeah. yeah, it won't be the last. Yeah, yes. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks again to Samir for joining us today on the show. Remember, guys, we are taking a short break, but we will be back on Tuesday, January 12th. So tune in then. Thank you for listening.